This is Channel 253. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. This is a pre-recorded episode of Move to Tacoma. I'm Marguerite, and I want you to move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. You'll like it. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Hello, this is the Move to Tacoma podcast. I'm Marguerite, and I'm here today with Maureen Sorensen from Amara Foster Care. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here. So um, you and your colleague Carolyn reached out um, after one of our recent adult civics happy hours um, when we were talking about the affordable housing crisis in Tacoma and uh, the rent is too damn high, if anyone hasn't listened to it, available in podcast form. Um, But you kind of brought to my attention that in addition to the housing crisis and sort of as a a, 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 something that's happening alongside of that, we have a crisis with our kids in Pierce County right now. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Sure. Currently in Pierce County, there are about 1,400 children in foster care. In 2017, there were about 1,200 dependency petitions filed. And that is a crisis because kids come into foster care in Pierce County at twice the rate they do in King County. So first of all, let's I have I mean, I have a question about that. But like, first of all, like what is what is foster care and what what is something how does a how does a child end up in foster care? That's a great question. Children come into foster care through no fault of their own. They are victims of abuse or neglect. Um I guess sort of the good thing about that is that most children, when they come into foster care, it is because of neglect. And it's just that parents don't have the resources and support to be the kind of parents they want to be. And a lot of that does have to do with affordable housing. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about that connection? Sure. So when uh, children are removed from their parents' care, uh, parents often lose their housing and they are working to get their kids back. They are working hard to get to their services. And when the parents are able to do the things they need to do to have their children return to them, which is what everybody wants to have happen, Mm -hmm. uh, housing is sometimes an issue because it's really difficult to return kids home to parents when they don't have housing. But just as a point of clarity, um, in case anyone's listening who is struggling with housing and is worried about their kids, it's not that if someone finds out that you're struggling with your housing situation or let's say you're living in your car, it's not like the government comes and takes your kids if you're living in your car with your kids, right? That's not how this works. That does not work that way. Okay. Absolutely not. The more kids that we can keep out of the system and the more families we can support outside the system, the better. So there is not a correlation between, um, you know, being at risk for losing your housing and having your child taken away. There have to be allegations of abuse or neglect that are impacting the child's development. And just to go back to what you said before, you said there are about 1,200 kids in Pierce County's system right now? No, it's actually closer to between fourteen and 1,500 on any given day. On any given day. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that's higher... It's a higher percentage than King County. What is the difference? Kids come into foster care at twice the rate they do in King County. So, whew. yeah. And and why why do you think that is? You know, um, ever since we've gotten that data, that's the question that everybody wants to know. And I think a lot of people in our community are trying to drill down on why that's happening. And um, 
I think it's going to take a long time for us to figure that out. I did hear from um, Judge Cuthbertson that uh, Tacoma files uh, twice as many felony drug convictions than King County does. Mm. That could be a piece of it. Um, but I'm sure that there's a lot of reasons for that to be happening, and nobody quite knows the answer to what that is just yet. Well, and I, you know, as someone who, you know, comes from a family with a history of addiction, like I, I tend to want to go like straight into, you know, the impacts of addiction on families and children. And like, I don't know if that's like a knee jerk thing and that's not true. But like you think about all the things we hear about the opiate crisis in Pierce County, like are things like that impacting it? Is it poverty? Is it displacement from in the increase of housing, like causing instability in homes? Is it all of those things? I think it's all of those things. I think certainly mental health is a huge component in that as well. Mm. Domestic violence, mm-hmm. um, the opioid addiction or the opioid crisis is really having an impact on the foster care system right now. And what what does that look like for a child? Like, can you give me any, I don't need a specific story necessarily, but just to give someone an idea of like, how does this all go down? How does a child end up in the system? And then once they are, I mean, I'm calling it the system. I don't even know if that's really what it is, but like, what does it look like? Somebody Somebody calls and alerts the government? Yes. So there is um, a phone number that people can call. And when they uh, have concerns about a child in our community that is being abused or neglected, that call goes to um, CPS and they figure out whether that is a call that screens in for an investigation or not. And then if it does screen in for an investigation, then the CPS worker goes out to the home. Uh, Oftentimes with the opiate uh, crisis, it is newborns being born at the hospital. So the CPS Mm. social worker would go out to the hospital and um, assess for safety. And if it is determined that the parent is not able to keep that child safe and they need to do some things and need some help to keep their child safe, the state will um, file a dependency and the child then does enter foster care. And at the same time, parents are offered services to be a safe and appropriate parent. So... So a mother will give birth to a child and maybe like the the doctor or the nurses in that hospital will notice some signs. The mother may test positive for opiates. Um, Oftentimes infants test positive for opiates and that spurs a CPS call. Is this a routine screen? Like how do they, do they look for indications before they do that? Or is like everybody that has a baby getting screened? Typically a lot, typically... Uh, There are signs that um, this child might not be safe if there's things, you know, mom didn't have prenatal care. She doesn't report housing. Um, Sometimes it just might be a screen that pops up at a coincidence. So there's lots of different ways that that could spur that. Um, A a friend of mine um, was... um, uh, like she had a methamphetamine problem and she had her baby and they somehow knew right away that she had been using. And what I remember about that situation is they found a family member first. So can you talk about that? Because I think a lot of people like this is like a, even knowing, you know, I mean, obviously we know that if someone's on drugs, they can't take care of a baby probably. But also like it's kind of a horrifying idea, the idea of like who decides when a, when a child is taken away. So can you talk about that? And then like what is the path? Like what is the what is the first thing they do and the second thing they do? And, you know, where does Amara fit in? 
Sure. I can talk in very generalities because I'm not a CPS worker, mm-hmm. and I leave that to—that's just certainly outside my realm of expertise on how they screen things and how they do things. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about Amara. Amara is a foster care agency that began actually in King County in 1921, so almost 100 years ago. Wow. Because of the reputation of the— um, foster care services, um, people from Tacoma, as far down south as Olympia, and all over the South Sound were traveling up to Amara to become licensed. And then Amara said, well, let's go down to that community and uh, see what we can do. So um, I was hired about two years ago, and we started with um, our emergency sanctuary. And that is a home where children who are immediately removed from their parents' care can come and spend that first few days that they're in care. And they are provided almost one-on-one trauma-informed care from the very moment they enter the system uh, up until that 72-hour time. It's about five days that we keep them that give the state time to either return the child home to their parent Mm -hmm. with some services and support, which is what everyone prefers. And if that can't happen, like you said, um, have a relative or someone in that child's community come forth. It could be a teacher or a friend, a coach, um, to run a background check and Mm -hmm. then... The, the child can leave the emergency sanctuary and go straight to those people. And then those children don't have to bump up into the foster care system mm-hmm. because we don't have enough foster homes. In the event kids do have to go into foster care, we work with the placement desk here to help uh, the placement desk do really appropriate matching for each child that comes into foster care. So. So there's, I think the the first thing I'm starting to realize is that it's, I, I had always just assumed that there were like people who were like signed up to be foster parents. And then like, sometimes they would just get a call in the night and like, suddenly there would be a child at their house that would stay there for a really long time. And that's not how it works. Well, that it does happen as well. So if they do have a, a foster home for that, for that child that can keep that child from that very first moment, um, kids can get placed there. The issue was, is that sometimes kids were getting placed in homes with that weren't really set up for success for those children. So either like not ready for infants or not ready for teens or... Right. If um, there is a, you know, sexually aggressive boy who's 10 years old and he gets placed in a foster home with little girls, that, Mm -hmm. of course, is not good for anyone involved. Mm -hmm. So it really just allows the state to find, you know, figure out where's the best placement for this child that this we have. specific child. Right. So, okay. So there are these, you, you just called it an emergency. Sanctuary. An emergency. Uh, what, did you say emergency? Did I invent that? No, it's, a it's, sanctuary. An, emer- it's, it's an emergency, an emergency sanctuary. sanctuary for okay. kids who are being immediately removed from their parents' care. So just they might describe the what one of these places looks like. Sure. We have, it's a house here in Tacoma. It's a five-bedroom house. We're licensed to take up to five children at a time. We take newborns all the way up to uh, the age of 18. Uh, we really focus on zero to 12. And if they have a sibling up to the age of 18, uh, we take them all so that siblings can stay together. Mm-hmm. And we have therapeutic child care specialist staff who are there 24 hours a day. And mm-hmm. then we also run with a wonderful, amazing group of volunteers. We have about 120 volunteers from the Tacoma community who come into the sanctuary and do regular shifts, read stories, give baths, take to the park, Mm. go to the zoo, maybe go to a doctor's appointment Mm -hmm. with kids and provide them that that trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. The unique thing about the program is because we have 120 people and that number is growing, volunteers, they really get to see the impact of 
you know, the issues in our community, substance abuse, mental health, domestic violence, um, all of those things. And they get to see the impact of what that is on a child. And it really calls them to action and to caring about their community. Mm-hmm. I think there's, you know, I've been noticing as as discussion of the opiate crisis is, is happening and a lot of conversations on Twitter and comments on some of Matt Driscoll's columns in the TNT, there are a lot of people that go like immediately into judgment on this stuff and just think like, well, what you just need to do is lock all these people up and blah, 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 like not recognizing that maybe helping people get back on their feet and care for their children, like the, the generational impact of this can be lessened. So like this is about supporting kids and supporting parents as well. You can't just support the kids without supporting the parents. Absolutely. The, the, the child's family of origin is by all means where they should go back to. If we took away everyone's kids based on whatever reason someone thought a child should be taken away, we would it wouldn't be so harmful to our community. The more that we can help the parents be the parents they want to be and provide them the support, the better off the child is. Well, and this might be a leap for some people listening because I I know it's something that I kind of have to wrap my head around. Like this idea that you know, it's, it's the same conversation we end up having in, with the affordable housing conversation is it's just like, well, it's, it's it's yes, of course, we want to have shelter beds for people who are experiencing homelessness. Yes, of course, we want to support children who are in bad and neglected situations. But do you want to fund mental health care? Do you want to fund affordable housing and very affordable housing and like help THA, you know, build more apartments so that families can be housed and so that stress can be reduced? And I mean, that's the thing is like everybody, everybody wants to make sure that baby in the hospital is OK. But I'm not sure that everybody makes the connection to what really needs to happen in in our fellow community members' lives in order to make that possible. And, I mean, just a conversation around, you know, addiction as a disease and all of that kind of stuff. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know that we're all super prepped for that. I think that's a good point. Um, Amara used to be um, more of an adoption agency, started as a relinquished infant program, was an adoption agency, and um, a few years ago um, really realized the impact that um, the children's connection to their past and how adoption can impact people in negative ways as well as positive ways. Mm. And so we have a post-adoption program that we do a lot of work with um, reuniting children who don't know who their families of origin are with them. But more than that, um, we also license foster homes in um, up and down the I-5, King County, Pierce County, Thurston County, all over. Um, And one of the things that we're working to do is really bridge that gap between the foster parent and the biological parent and creating a natural relationship Mm. in the hopes that the foster parent can be really encouraging to the family of origin and the and supporting that relationship. And even when children go back home to their parents, stay involved in their lives as sort of a pseudo relative Mm. or that one thing, because the research has been very clear that most children and families need one supportive adult that can help them. And Mm. that's um, been a harbinger of success for people. And so we're working to have our foster parents be supportive of that relationship even after kids go home. And to the parents. Can I ask just some of a little more of the history around this? Because I, I get the impression that there are some like changing. I mean, like, like, OK, so super dumb question. Why don't we put kids in orphanages now? Wouldn't that be a more efficient thing? Like just just have like a big Hogwartsy situation here in Tacoma. And when kids go into foster care, they just go there and there's lots of people that take care of them. And like, why is that? Why don't we do orphanages anymore? Well, I would 
I would just say that most people don't have a positive regard for an orphanage. Mm. And that's why we love our sanctuary model is because when kids are newly coming into care, we can provide that trauma-informed one-on-one care. If you have 200 kids mm. in an orphanage, it's really hard to hone in on that particular child's needs, that particular child's family's needs. It's... Um, it's quite expensive to run our emergency sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And it's we run the sanctuary on 100% philanthropy because we want the community to realize that these are our kids and we have a responsibility to take care of them. And mm-hmm. taking care of them means taking care of their families. Mm-hmm. Um, orphanage typically have not been... Um, Release. When did they go out of fashion? When did that That's happen? That's a great question. I'm not <laughs> the sure. The olden days? Yeah, in the olden days, way before I it's was born. It's been a while. It's been it's been a long time since that's been the norm. Yep. And so what, in the last 20 years, like how has foster care evolved? I, I, I remember I heard right before we had our initial conversation, like this thing about foster to adopt and how that was sort of like becoming kind of a bad word. And I didn't know what it meant. Can you talk about that? <laughs> sure. Uh, foster to adopt, it, you know, sure, that does happen. And if if when kids come into the system, if if we can't find family and they can't go back to their family of origin for safety reasons, and of course they need to be adopted. But I think as a culture and a shift, uh, we're finding that that's not the best thing for kids. Mm. And building strong communities from the inside out is the best thing. So we consider our agency a foster care agency. And we ask our our foster parents to be willing to care for a child for as long as that specific child needs. It may be a day, a two weeks, six months, two years. It may be forever. But to keep the possibility and the dream alive for that child and their family that they would go home. Okay. So... First, the th- first thing that comes up for me when I hear that is like, wow, that's so much ambiguity. Like, I'm a person like I don't like a lot of ambiguity. I like, to, what's the thing I need to do? Like, what am I committing to? And so, I'm imagining if someone is considering becoming a foster parent, like they might show up all gung ho to the orientation and then be like, wait, what? Like, what am? What is? I mean, what is it that we? What is it that we need from people who feel like they have this to offer? So I. I hear you, and I have the. I think a lot of people have um, preconceived notions or misinformation about mm. what foster care is. Let's just break it down. Like foster care for dummies. How does it work? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and I think that I would love to see just a community-wide broadcast message that when kids are removed from their parents' care. We need a safe place for them to go. And at the same time, we also need somebody working on the other side to really provide those parents with the supports, the transportation, the housing, the treatment that they need to be successful. And so it it's a two-pronged approach that we really have to – you have to start somewhere. And us keeping kids safe is as a community is – the most important place to start. So your organization is really just focused on on that aspect. So you help bring in foster parents, get them trained up and knowledgeable about how to support children, but also how to interact with the parents. Then you're also, I imagine, collaborating with agencies that provide support around addiction, mental health, and housing. Is this right? This the states that's the the, the job state. of the state social worker to provide. So they're like the hub, right? And you're one of many agencies that support that. Correct. And everybody kind of works together. Yep. 
Um, so can can we talk about? Let's say there's somebody listening who's thought about this before and is like, okay, I think I'd like to learn more about being involved in this. I'd like to be, do you go right to like a training of some kind where you get a background check and then you get trained to be a foster parent? Or is there like, do you dip your toe in first with some kind of support role? Like, what does that path to doing that look like? And then also like, how many people short are we? How big is this crisis? How many more foster parents do we need in this county? Sure. So I think that um, there's different ways that people can can get licensed through foster care. And I'll, I'll talk about a little bit before that. I think people hear the need or they, you know, I hear about becoming a foster parent. And when they come to a, a nonprofit like ours and start talking about it, they say, well, I actually heard about becoming a foster parent five years ago and then 10 years ago. And then mm. I heard this and I saw this ad. And so it's usually this sort of circuitous path that gets people to where they are. And along that path, they might have gotten some misinformation along the way right. that caused them to kind of step back from it. And so what we're trying to do is demystify that path. Great. And um, there's 13 child placing agencies in Pierce County. People can also get licensed through the state. And um, so, if, for instance, if you wanted to get licensed with Amara, I only know uh, I know uh, this the way to get licensed the best through our agency. So that's what I'm going to talk about, if that's okay. Yeah, and your agency is a nonprofit yep. that works collaboratively with Child Protective Services. Yes. Okay. Yep. And so, if, and you're one of like you just said 13. So there's, there's 13 child placing agencies in Pierce County, and and that, and those are all nonprofits. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. So there's there's CPS. So you can go straight to the. Straight I'm not to positive th- about that. Okay. I'm not. I I know that most are. Okay. Yes. Got it. Um, and so if you're interested in becoming a foster parent, you could certainly go to the Amara website. Amara puts kidsfirst.org. There's a lot of information about becoming a foster parent. We have a wonderful foster parent recruiter who also does our African-American and Native American outreach. Mm. His name is Trey Rabin. And uh, they could call Trey and get information from Trey over the phone. And we also hold Amara information meetings where it's an hour and a half information meeting where people can come and learn about what it's like to become a foster parent. And Trey does a great job with those trainings. Trey is a foster parent himself. And so he really has um, amazing insight to becoming a foster parent and everything that takes. So he's really great at demystifying um, that. So I think that's a great place to start. And then at that time, people can fill out the foster parent application then they go through the home study process, and then they get their foster parent license. And then um, as kids come into care, they get information about there's a two-year-old that came into care, a newborn that came into care, a 10-year-old that came into care, and uh, figure out what works best for them and their family. Mm. Do you, I mean, are there all different kinds of people that are foster parents or is, do you find it's typically people with that already have kids or that have grown kids or that were not able to have kids or the single people, couples, gay couples, straight couples? Like, what do you see out there? It's all over the board. And one of the things that's very unique about our agency is we are very inclusive and we have um, a very inclusive definition of what family is. So, yes, mm. it can be um a single person. It can be someone who is just a renter. It can be someone from the LGBTQ community. We believe that family is defined by love and connection. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious. I feel like maybe this is really early in the conversation to bring this up, but it's, I feel like you kind of brought it in this issue around race and fostering and just sort of, you know, uh, 
I'm, I'm thinking like we're nobody can tell because we're on the radio right now. But like we are both white ladies and, um, you know, thinking about, you know, the impacts of white supremacy and institutionalized racism on, you know, people in poverty and like how the system is set up to advantage certain people and disadvantage other people. And like, how do you make sure that I guess the question I'm asking, I hope this is okay. It's like, how do you make sure you're not perpetuating white supremacy through this system, right? White people taking, you know, brown kids from their brown parents or, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm probably asking this question wrong. So please uh, message me with feedback if I'm fucking this no, up. No, just to, to <laughs> you know, to make, to sort of weed it down to the fact that it's quite well known that African-American children are overrepresented in the system, in the foster care system, and African-American foster homes are underrepresented in the system. Mm. And that meant something to us at Amara. So we started uh, a, a conversation around that in the African-American community only around and called it It Takes a Village. And this conversations that take place um, in Seattle and Tacoma uh, and they meet and they have conversations with Africa. They're close to the African-American community to hear those stories and to hear what they would need and what they would want for their community. And we also do a lot of work around um, transracial and transcultural caregiving workshops mm. because it is just a foregone conclusion that we that um, transcultural placements happen. Right. And we we have to do what's best for kids in foster care. If kids are going to be placed in a foster home outside of their um, culture or their race, uh, that foster home should have a responsibility and a commitment to making sure that they are meeting that child's needs. Mm -hmm. We also do critical conversations that address youth in foster care that um, come from the African-American, Native American, and LGBT community. And... Um, these are our youth in our community, and we have to play a role in confronting the challenges that led to the inequities in the foster care system. Yeah. So how does that play out? Like, what can you, can you give me an example? Like, so some let's say, let's say I'm a white lady and I want to do the foster caring. And so I go and I get some kind of training. Like, is it something as simple as like, you know, you might be placed with a child who is um English is not their first language, for example. Like, how does that work? Or, you know, like, we need you to be able to take care of a child's hair that might not be like your hair. Is that the kind of stuff we're talking about? I mean, I know there, there must be so much more to it than that, but... I think those, it's it's all of those things, you know. And just for an example, at our emergency sanctuary, we had a sibling set of four African-American children at the sanctuary. And one of the kids was um, talking with one of her friends on the phone, and I happened to be in the room listening and she said they have African American or she didn't say African American she <laughs> said they have our hair products mm. and she goes and good ones too <laughs> and she was just so excited and we took our staff to a training on how to care for African American hair and we're always I don't think we're ever going to get there we're never going to be perfect at this but we have to keep trying and we have mm. to keep doing everything that we can to work with different communities to support them to support the children in their community so I imagine like hair and language. These are some like very like, yes, obviously got to got to meet those needs. But what about things like I'm thinking about like, you know, I've been kind of on a journey with learning about like my own internalized racism. Like how do you train, you know, maybe white people who grew up in white communities to not, you know, 
I don't know. I, am I making sense? Like, not be like accidentally like oppressive to these kids? <laughs> Is this making no, sense? No, I think it's. I think we should always be wondering if we are accidentally doing that, um, because I think most of the time we have good intentions, but we do things wrong a lot. Mm. And that's why we have the transracial and transcultural caregiving workshops that Mm -hmm. deal with privilege, implicit bias, microaggressions. And we also feature an adult panel of adoptees Uh, across the, you know, gender, race, ethnicity that can speak to what their experience was because we can learn from them so much. Like what worked, what did not work. Right. Is there like accountability? You talked about this this group that that you're working with, the It Takes a Village group. Like is that that an accountability for your leadership as well to kind of stay on track? Or how do you how do you make sure that that you're that you're that you're moving forward with all of that? So at Amara, we, in our strategic plan, we set, um, we have some um, values that we, that guide all the work we do. And one of the values is inclusiveness and across the board, across literally our board of directors, Mm. our executive director, Mm. all of our directors, all of our staff. We have um, cultural conversations and cultural education and training. And we bring in consultants from the outside to make sure that we're doing this right. Mm -hmm. And that's and doing it right is an evolving thing, it sounds like. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So what do you think people need to know that they don't seem to know about this crisis and how they can engage and support? What are the different ways? We talked about becoming a foster parent, but what are some other ways that people can engage and support? I mean, obviously, I'm sure you're happy to take some money. <laughs> yes, because we do run our sanctuary on 100% philanthropy. There are lots of ways that people can, um, through becoming a volunteer at the sanctuary and doing one shift a month. And if people don't have time to do that, uh, certainly um, doing a jeans drive or a sock drive mm. or um, even just a, a, a girl's bra drive. You just mm. don't really realize the impact of having a brand new bra on a teenage girl that's coming into foster care can make. Um, And of course, we always take gift cards to Fred Meyer and Walmart because we do give kids when they come in um, three days worth of new clothes and they leave our sanctuary with a duffel bag full of three days worth of clothes and a basics kit. Nice. And um, it... People can also volunteer for, um, there's a wonderful group in Tacoma, uh, the Court Appointed Special Advocate Program, so CASA volunteers. Yes. And CASA, my friend Brandy did this. Sure, yeah. So um, CASAs are volunteers, and it takes up a little bit more time than one shift a month, like the sanctuary might, or a pajama drive or clo- clothes drive might. Um, but you actually get to um, advocate for a child in foster care. And you work with the CASA coordinator at juvenile court, and you are the eyes and the ears for that child, for the judge. And that is about a two-year commitment that mm-hmm. you can make. And I think that there's just there's lots of things that people can do. And if people have more questions about how can I help, yeah. they can certainly contact me. Great. And we'll put um, Amara in the show notes. Um, I think we should put a link to the CASA program in the yep, show notes. that'd be great. Um, and this way people can kind of go down that rabbit hole if that's what they would like to do. Um, I'm thinking about the, I know you said there are other organizations and I know you can really only speak about yours, but I'm curious, like, what are the motivations of different types of organizations? I mean, are there religious groups? And if so, like, how do they, like, do you have like, is there like a, a 
I'm, you know, I was raised Catholic. Like, is there like a Catholic, you know, foster program or a Christian foster program yeah, that's where they have question. their own sort of priorities? And how is that different than what you guys do? And is I, I'm a little just I'm just a little curious about how all that works. Sure. So Catholic Community Services license foster homes. Uh, Olive Crest license foster homes. There are those are just two agencies in, in our community. Um, there's other ones as well as the state. And um, we have. We have actually formed as a group with all the child placing agencies in Pierce County to say, you know, if we 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 just want to make sure that no safe appropriate foster parent is ever told no ever told no. Mm. So if somebody called Amara and said, you know, we we are Christians and we really need the support of our faith based community and want to become foster parents, we may not be the best organization for them because we are so inclusive and have a different definition of. Um, family. Mm -hmm. But we would say, you please call, you know, Olive Crest or CCS or a place Mm -hmm. called Hope or one of these different agencies. And really, we want foster parents to do their research about what's going to be the best uh, child placing agency that works for me. So is there like, um, I imagine the government has sort of a baseline standard for how this all works. And then that's sort of interpreted through the different groups that support the foster parents. Is that is that the right? So all the child placing agencies in Pierce County are licensed through the state. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and then, I, yeah, and I, I'm trying to ask this in a way that doesn't make it like, I don't want you to talk bad or like try to, I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to do, but just to help understand like, is, is it almost like there are different philosophies of supporting these kids through different organizations or you all kind of we are all, we're all sort of signing up for the same mission here. We all hold the same core beliefs. It's just expressed a little bit differently in our mission statement or how, do, how does I, I, if that's delicate territory, you can just tell me. <laughs> I think that is delicate territory. Um I would. I can only speak for Amara, mm-hmm. and we really look at the demographic of child that comes into foster care, and we look at all different kids that come into foster care, and how can we best match them in the community? Not what, n- not what a foster parent needs or wants, mm. but really what the child needs and wants, and that's really our focus: is putting the child at the center of the work and building the support around the child from the child out, not the other way around. So when you think about the system as a whole, if you were able to, like, wave your magic wand and, you know, like, what is, I mean, I'm sure that you need a lot of things, but you need individuals to have a greater understanding, you need more money. Like, what what are the things that you would love to see kind of come about, you know, over the next few years as we kind of engage with this crisis? And, like, what does, what does progress look like and what does appropriate support from the community look like? If people are listening and they want to engage, like, how can they do that? Sure. So Amara works with kids entering, transitioning through, and exiting out of foster care. And I think because there are so many kids coming into foster care that the issue stretches outside of that. And so we are also trying to look at how can we prevent kids from coming in to the foster care system? Mm. And how can we, um, How if I could wave a magic wand, we would have places for parents to go that's, where they could feel safe and say, I need some help to be the kind of parent that I want to be with no judgment. Mm. And they would get the support that they needed. They would have uh, a community that would rise up around them and help them be the parent they want to be. 
And that looks like rehabilitation facilities, mental health support, medical support services for people who are in different kinds of crisis. Is that what that would look like? Um, I'm thinking more. I, I think all those things would be helpful, but I'm thinking more along, you know, in-home services when, you know, new moms are going home from the hospital with a baby and they might need some support to get a crib or get a bed mm. or um, I maybe they're experiencing some postpartum depression that could ultimately lead to some sort of abuse, really being able to support those parents. Maybe it's a young dad who's 18 years old and doesn't really know how, doesn't know how annoying a baby's cry can be and that really needs that support and that's that kind of help. I'm thinking like I'm 38. So like for the last few years, a lot of my lady friends have been like entering parenthood. I mean, the ones that didn't have babies right out of high school because that was the other wave. <laughs> but um, most of my friends have partners and adequate support and jobs. Some of them even have a little paid family leave, like a little bit of paid time off to support their newborns. Child care. Yeah, not all of them. But that's considered, I would think of that as being like the affluent way to have a baby. That, and maybe the, most of these babies were planned. But when I think about someone who, you know, has an unplanned child, who maybe doesn't have a partner who's participating, who doesn't have a place to live, who has their own struggles, like, where does the support come from? Because, of course, like, I'm like a fixer. So I'm thinking, like, well, what policies do I advocate for? What, you know, how do we pay for this? Is it, I imagine it's much less expensive to support mothers and babies and fathers, you know, at this point than it is to, you know, have kids in foster care and have, you know, parents and children incarcerated, right? Like, that's very, very, very expensive, right. you know, just from that point of view, also less humane. So, like, what does it look like to support parents and kids specifically? Can you think of any policies? Or Well, I think that when programs like maternity, um, public uh, health nurses, uh, maternity support services, when those programs are cut and we can't access moms early when they're pregnant to get the help that they need. Um, have those programs been cut? You know, they don't have the funding that they should. And yeah. They and where does that funding come from? Do you know? The funding is usually coming from the state. So the state level. It could come from state. Which is like federal. What? Like property taxes or is it uh, sales taxes? Like, I never know about these things. Uh, you're, you're, yeah, you're talking over my head. Now. All right. Okay. Well, we'll find <laughs> out. Doug will, Doug will call someone and ask. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> but like, yeah, I mean, I guess so that's the thing. So when we're talking to our, so this, we're talking about our legislators, we're talking about our representatives at the state level and not necessarily our city council person, for example. You could talk to the city council people. I think what, what I think about is Pierce County. And so I talk to everyone in Pierce County that I can talk to about this because I think that everyone should care. And everyone does care about kids. I was down in Olympia talking to the Kids Caucus about mm. this very topic. And what was so exciting for me is there were legislators from Washington State in that room that ran across the political spectrum. Right. From the most liberal, liberal to the most conservative, Republican. And every single person in that room agreed that kids should be safe and families should have what they need to be successful. And I and I just think that's the one thing that we can all agree on. And if that's it, let's do it. Yeah. Let's get together as a community. Let's have these conversations. And I think other people are doing that. The Children's Museum just hosted the symposium on our yes, youngest children. Yes. And the Urban Studies Program is doing some really unique work in the in Tacoma and Pierce County. And so I think 
I don't know the answers to fix everything in the state and, you know, the country, but <laughs> I do know that we can make a difference because Tacoma is such a special community. Yeah. People care. I think I'm really hearing from you, like we kind of poked around at this conversation from different angles, but just prioritizing other people in our community, like, you know. We're Americans, so we're such rugged individualists, right? right? But to remember that helping other people and finding ways that are congruent with your values to 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 support members of our community is is very selfish. Ultimately, like it's good for us individually to care about other people, right? I mean, research shows that people who do things for other people, who are invested in their community, um, are happier. And I want everyone in Tacoma and Pierce County to be happy. And I can help you do that. All right. Well, okay, Maureen, you tell me how to do it then, because I'm a very selfish person. I'm single, older lady in my late 30s with no kids who can't really be around kids because I swear a little bit too much. I have to wait till they're like six or seven and can handle it. So how do I support? Obviously, I should not be having um, infants in my house. I can change a diaper, but I'd rather not. Like, so do I throw parties and raise money? Do I, what do, what do, what do people like me do to, like, let's say there's like a single dude listening who's like, I'm not going to have any kids in my house, but this I care about my community and I want to support parents and I want to support children. Like how do how do those how do people like us like do that? Sure. I think that there's lots of ways for people to do that. And I and again, if people want to get involved again, become a CASA, mm-hmm. um, contact us if you want to um if you want to do something and you have $25, <laughs> we will buy baby formula or diapers at Costco for the sanctuary. Um, yeah. How do we know what kinds of things you need? Because, I mean, I can see, like, a bra fundraiser. Like, if you're getting together with your lady friends for something. I mean, obviously, you always need – Doug's just making the money sign. I know you need the money. <laughs> Get you the money. But also, like, I mean, I, I, I'm i sensitive to, like I, – I always kind of make this joke with my friends, like – volunteering, like just going and stuffing envelopes is not necessarily what a lot of these organizations need. And, and and we all like to do the backpack drive and we all like to do the toiletries drive. But like, how do we know we're really getting things for you that are actually useful? So we are have a program coordinator at the Emergency Sanctuary. Her name is Whitney. And when people want to donate or give, of course, we don't need 5,000 bras. <laughs> we don't need 10,000 backpacks. But we do need... 50 bras, right? And so... Um, so she can get a list of like yeah. a wish list to people. Absolutely. Yep. And we also have an Amazon um, Smiles, at, uh, Amazon wish list, um, Amara, mm-hmm. and people can donate that way. Uh, I think people can talk about it. I think people can just talk about it in the community. If you know people who with whom this mission might resonate, having that conversation and just saying, did you know in Pierce County there's 1,400 children in foster care every single day when you wake up? And I think giving money is also helpful. Um, I was just talking to um, the um, philanthropy director at the Broadway Center, mm. and we were having a conversation about, you know, when kids get their first job or people get their first job, it's all about the 401k yeah. and saving for your retirement. But also there's another part of your life that's the spiritual part and the caring and connecting part mm. and giving $10 a month when you turn 21 or 22 or 18 and get your first job mm. or $5 a month and building that over your life. And then when you get to the end of your life or at different points, you can you can know that you had an impact in your community in just a really small way. So that's just another thing that people can do to think about that. 
This reminds me, we had uh, Jessica Gavra and Lane Hogan on from the 253 Club at YWCA. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about how 253 Club is all about like getting younger people involved in philanthropy. Philanthropy. So even Mm -hmm. if it's just $10 a month or less, you know, that if it's just bringing tampons to the tampon drive or whatever it is that they're they're building that philanthropy muscle and like recognizing the impact of what they do. I think that's sometimes hard to really recognize when you start to engage with nonprofits is, you know, you go to a fundraiser and it's like they raised $250,000 tonight. You know, I was at a multi-care event where the raise the paddle started at $25,000. And I was like, Jesus, you know, like, what am I doing here? Like, this isn't for me. And, And to feel like if I'm not doing that, well, then I guess other people are handling it like that's that's a feeling I think that can creep in and to rec- and, and I, I don't want to just look like I'm doing something helpful like right. I want to actually be doing something helpful right and I, th- I think that that's something that a lot of us kind of struggle with and 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 I'm, I'm also thinking about how like giving money to an organization like Amara or one of the other support what did you call it support agencies is that what you the child placing agencies child placing agencies the, yeah. <laughs> but also like funding CPS I have my my niece's uh, my niece's boyfriend's best friend's husband works at CPS and God that guy's tired, you know and he works so hard and he's so frustrated and 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 how do we support like how do we make sure they have the funding they need so they can hire enough people so they're not so you know strung out like like we don't want good people burning out at CPS like where does that funding come from how do we support that. I again. Where I, is the logjam in that? <laughs> I agree with you that um, you know whenever something goes wrong with a child in the foster care system, it always goes back to the social worker. And um, I've been I've been working with the CUSP program in Pierce County for over fifteen years and work with a lot of social workers, and mm. they are for the most part, very wonderful people who are very overworked and challenged and taxed, and they can't come to work every day with the volume of kids coming into foster care. It's just, it's not enough. So yes, we should be asking for more funding, more support for DSHS and Children and Family Services. So when we're having those critical conversations that you were just talking about, like, like, have you ever had a conversation with somebody that just didn't understand the need? Like, hey, maybe what we need to do is just let, you know, let people take care of themselves, let people take care of their neighbors. Like, why do we need the government what, what do you say to somebody who says, like, we don't need to fund more government, like more government is the problem? Well, I I also think that even like we were talking about before, the more kids we can keep out of the system, then the less tax that system is, and then the people can do their jobs there. And so who who can we connect with in our community, and how can we have these conversations? And Project Child Success and First Five Fundamentals are doing great work in that in that vein, and we've been partnering with them. Too. What is Project Child Success and Project, First Five Fundamentals? Project Child Success is a um, a nonprofit here in Tacoma, and they um, do um, they um, focus on supports for um, children in our community from zero to five. Mm. They have um, lots of impact on legislation mm. and um, creating um, communities of who's doing what work, so we can all work together to support uh, zero zero to fives in our community. Mm -hmm. And part of that, a big part of that population is children in foster care. And Mm. so um, I'm seeing just a lot of cross um, organization collaboration that is really making a big impact. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pause right now to uh, go to a message from our sponsor, and then we're going to come right back. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 sister show, The Nerd Farmer Podcast. Channel 253 is brought to you by Alaska Airlines. 
But here's the God's honest truth. I'd be telling you how great they were if they weren't sponsoring our podcast. If anyone from Alaska is listening, please don't take me up on that. But really, I've been singing the praise of Alaska for a long time. I don't go to travel sites. I don't shop around. I stick with the hometown airline. I like their mileage plan. I like direct flights. I like their efficient service. I like their flight attendants who are really friendly. I like their craft beers. And so help me, I love that cheese plate. The next time you want a great cheese plate at 30,000 feet, go to alaskaair.com and reserve yours today. And if you need to fly somewhere, they can probably help with that too. I'm Nate Bowling, Alaska Airlines MVP, and I fly Alaska. All right, we are back with Maureen from Amara. So, Maureen, um, we've been talking about foster care and this organization that you're in, but I, I forgot to ask when you moved to Tacoma and why you're a Tacoma lady. Well, thank you for asking. I'm <laughs> happy to talk about that because I'm such a fan of Tacoma. We moved over to uh, Pierce County, actually Gig Harbor in 1992 mm. and um, raised our kids. Um, our son went to school in Gig Harbor and our daughter went to school in Tacoma. Mm. And so I got to sort of know the Tacoma community. And then I started volunteering for the CASA program in 2002 or three and uh, just started meeting people in Tacoma and um, understanding the, the specialness and the uniqueness of Tacoma. And so when our kids graduated from college, my husband and I um, decided to move to Tacoma. And that was, gosh, five and a half years ago. And so we've been living in Tacoma for five and a half years. And I just love this community. It's just, it's so unique and diverse and welcoming and people care. And I just, I'm just so happy to be in Tacoma. Can you talk about like what neighborhood? Did you get a house? Did you get a townhouse? What what was your lifestyle shift? Sure. So we bought a house in the stadium district ah. and bought an old house and remodeled it. And that was a lot of fun and just a journey that we had never been on <laughs> before. And yeah, so and you're still there. Fun. No, we actually sold our house oh. uh, about a well about two months ago, and okay. we moved into a condo downtown. All right, I yeah. like a condo downtown. It's really fun. I just like being in the center of my community. Yes, and a lot of people say, "Gosh, I don't, I don't want to work in the community," especially people in the mental health field don't want right. to, you know, just be running oh, I've into heard it. That. I've heard that before, and I get that, but I also like. I just want to know my community. And if I'm going to be helping people and working to better my community, I feel like I should live here and know it. Yeah. So I really um, spend a ton of time downtown. I go to the Tacoma Center Y. Mm. Um, so I just think it really gives me a, a unique view of, you know, I see the homeless people on the street mm -hmm. every single day. Absolutely. And I just, you know, I think... I always think, who let you down? What mm. system let you down? Where did that go wrong for you? And want to pick that person up and take them back to that place yeah. and make it better. And I, I know I can't do that. So that's why I have such a passion for working with kids, especially kids that come into foster care, to do my best and share with my community how I don't want that to be the outcome for kids. I'm interested in this conversation around like sort of like living where you work. I've, I've definitely heard this from clients in the past. They're like, you know, something as simple as a teacher saying like, oh, I, I don't really want to bump into my students at the grocery store. But then I also I interviewed Nate Bowling on the podcast last year and he was like, I see my kids parents in the grocery store and I'm able to like tell them what's up. And he likes that. Right. So there's different kinds of people. But I, I'm sort of interested philosophically in this idea of mm -hmm. like um, living in a place where you're removed from the reality of what's happening 
and living in a place where you see it every day. Because I see, you know, there's there's people that sleep on my front porch. You know, like it's not a when I go to a luncheon about, you know, people experiencing homelessness or the impacts of mental health issues. Like it's not theoretical. Right. It's it's the day to day. And I think there's two different reactions you can have to that, which is like, what are we doing to get rid of all these people? And like you said, like what where is the the flaw in the system that's that's creating this this problem? Right. And I think that the answer is so frustrating. Because it's not like one thing. It's so many things. Right. So how do you, I mean, since you're in it and you're living it, like how do you, what is your, I mean, not solution, but what is your philosophy? Like what is your approach? My philosophy is that I I think if you are trying to make an impact on the community, it's really helpful to live there and to ask people in that community what they need to be successful. Mm. On the other different s- than saying like, how do we help these exactly. poor people? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. What uh, do you need to I, be successful? When I need help, that's what I want. I yep. want people not to say this is what you need. I want people to hear like what I think I need because I think as human beings, that's in us somewhere, and we need people who are. And communities that can help draw that out, we need to listen to people so that we can actually help them. At the same time, this isn't this isn't you know my take on it, but um, sometimes people do their best work when they don't live in their community, and I think yeah. people need to do what's best for them. Yeah. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. If you're going to come into Tacoma or Pierce County and do some amazing stuff and not live here, I say thank you. Yeah, we'll take your money. Yeah, we'll take your help. We'll take your money. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. I've especially and I know we're drifting a little bit, but um, you just seem like such a competent conversationalist around this topic. I want to learn from you. Like I've I've been wondering, especially around the topic of homelessness, um, like how to support individuals without um, I've been told that I have a little bit of a controlling personality, like um, (laughs) without trying to control their experience because there's this idea of like like I was very much raised I don't know if I was raised with this but I definitely had the the perspective growing up out in the county where I, I didn't see a lot of people experiencing homelessness at that time like they're just going to use that money for drugs. They're not really homeless. Like, uh, they're, you know, they, they make a lot of money. You can stand in front of the post office and make so much money all day. And, like, you know, giving the money, you know, you don't ever give a homeless person money. Like, I feel like I really got that message growing up. And now I feel like the message is almost, like, like how do you balance that with, like, okay, so, like, give a person five bucks or ten bucks and let them figure it out. Don't give them a grocery you know, don't give them specific items. You don't know what they need. Let them take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. But you know, also like they're, they might be in that situation because they're having trouble making good decisions for themselves. And like, how do you kind of balance like supporting their autonomy and their ability to know what's best for them with like, you know, man, sometimes when I've been in my, my worst place, like I've been very self-destructive. Right. How do you balance that? Uh, I think if I knew that, then <laughs> <laughs> you and I would be sitting somewhere else right now. Um, I, I don't know. I think that I think that's really challenging. Um, people experience homelessness for a lot of different mm. reasons. Kids uh, are removed from their parents' care for a lot of different reasons. And um, yeah, I think that's a, we could talk forever <laughs> on that topic. Well, for people who maybe are new to city life and are startled, like, I mean, someone moving from Gig Harbor to a condo in downtown Tacoma, like you've done, might be very startled. You know, you, you're you pretty hip to the jive. But, like, some people would be like, what is happening? Why is there a person sleeping on my steps this morning? Sure. Like, what can be done? You know, like, what are, what are things that are not helpful? I think that, that the stereotypes are not helpful. Um, I remember moving to Gig Harbor and— um, 
you know, hearing that it was dangerous to come to Tacoma. And, and maybe in that time it, it you know, it was different, but that was what I heard and learned. And you can hear that today in Gig Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, just I think I learned through um, working with kids in foster care and volunteering as a, a CASA and working with parents and people would, you know, and still are have this fear that, oh, if parents had their ch- kids taken away from them, that they're, you know, scary and frightening. And mm. and once you, you know, you start working in that environment and you start working with the parents and you start seeing the heart and soul of who they are, then you're not afraid anymore. Mm. And, you know, when you see people in Tacoma who are experiencing homelessness, I, you know, I'm, I'm just not, it doesn't, it's not, I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of them. And don't get me wrong. I've been chased by people experiencing homelessness <laughs> on running through Wright Park in the morning. Yeah. And um, and yeah, while that's scary at the same time, I just think I wonder what we can be doing to help that person. I'm wondering what you just said kind of sparked some thinking in me around like this idea that, you know, we've really focused on people who whose kids, you know, who aren't who aren't able to take care of their kids who are poor. But I mean, I I have friends that had wealthy parents who would leave them sure. for a long period. Like neglect is not necessarily it's just almost like wealth insulates you from the consequences of your neglect. Right. Like I have wealthy friends with wealthy parents who were severe alcoholics and severely cruel <laughs> and CPS never came for them. Right. So what is that conversation? It's just all about the dis proportionality of it's almost like the consequences are double if you're poor for everything (laughs) yeah for sure yeah for any minority or um person who's not in that class and I think you know I grew up like you in a catholic family and saw a lot of um issues and things happening around that um, would never draw the attention of somebody else mm-hmm. and for for safety of kids. And quite honestly, those are the people those are the families that kind of scare me the most. While it's terrible to be taken away from your parents and involved with the CPS and in the system, um, there's a lot of kids out there who are um, and families that are struggling themselves and they have different resources to hide it or mm. mask it. Or not have the conversation about it. I have a friend who um, grew up with severely alcoholic parents, and they were wealthy. And she said that she reached out to a family member, and she said, "You have everything you need. Like, what are you complaining about? Like, you have food, and you have a house, and you know, like a lot of terrible things were happening there." And and I think back in those, I think back to those times, and I think people didn't know yeah. what it what it looked like or how to help or how to you know or what what kind of impact it might have had on them had they stepped in yeah and this is this is i mean i think this is an interesting conversation too and we're just going on and on today maureen but like <laughs> we could talk forever yeah i i think you know it's very easy to get like this paradigm because this is your job is to talk about like okay how do we fund and support these kids that are in this system but like there's like a humility to recognizing that this is also happening in our neighbors homes like it's much bigger than just the the what we're tracking you know if you figure 1400 kids in in the foster care system that we know of 
who are experiencing neglect and abuse. And the problem is actually much larger. And the, the contribution that we as individuals can make and the impact we can have is actually bigger than just even what you and I are really talking about right. here. Like like recognizing that and supporting people and how – what if the right thing – I'm thinking of a time when I wanted to call CPS and I did not. And those kids are grown now and we've talked about it since. And like maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. Maybe I'm glad I didn't do that. And they have a lot of stuff now. And like what can you do to support someone if you're not going to call CPS like, what does that look like? I think it's just being involved and caring and talking to people in your community mm. and, um, you know, going, talking. Teachers see this all the time with kids coming yeah. to school because kids' behaviors tell us something for the most part. And we should be paying attention and, you know, without judgment and trying to help our families be better. Um that's such a huge conversation and, and big issue. But build community around yourself and build community around kids in our community. And that's all I can think of to do. And so that's where I keep my focus. That's a good, that's a good focus. I'm thinking about the, the symposium. Uh, what was it called? The symposium? The Children's Symposium. The Children's Symposium. Symposium on our youngest citizens. And there is this um, movement to make yes. Tacoma and Pierce County be child-centered communities, and a lot of really cool people are very invested in this, and I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm very interested in this also. I um, I think of myself as somebody who's like, you know, I'm not one of those people that wants to see kids in the bar. Like, I mean, you know, this has become a hip thing now, like at the Seven Seas. Like, there's kids' birthday parties at the Seven Seas, and I'm like, where are the grown-up spaces? Where are my fellow grown-ups convening now? Like, I, I, I joke about that a lot because I'm a, you know, I'm a child-free person. But I'm, I'm really intrigued by this. I know that there was a delegation that went to Emilia Romana in Italy where they have, like, made all of these changes to support children. And and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of—what I'm trying to say, I'm kind of coming around to the idea that, like, taking very good care of kids and being welcoming to kids is good for grown-ups, too. <laughs> it is. It is good for grown-ups. I'm figuring this out, Maureen. I know this probably sounds very— like, Parenting is hard. Yeah. I, I just think it's, it's really hard, and we don't have a manual. We don't know how to do it. Mm. We just assume that— Everyone's going to do it really well. And um, parents are always looking for ways to um, really be excellent, amazing parents. But at the same time, they have, you know, we're people and we need support. And um, just being involved in your community and having the support that you need as a parent helps you be a better parent to your child. And as community members, whether we have kids or we don't, what do you think maybe – Maybe in closing, like how can we be good good to kids that might not be our kids? I think you can, you know, there's so many things. And um, certainly volunteering. You can volunteer at Amara. You can volunteer at CASA. You can volunteer to read to kids at the library. Mm. I know that the Children's Museum does the power to play, and they do those in all different communities. And um, who doesn't love to play? <laughs> uh, so you can go and play with kids. And, you know, even just going into your local school, finding out what school is in what what school here is can I go to? And just walking in and saying, hey, I'd love to help out. Does a kid need some resources or support or assistance? Can I come in and read with them? Um, so it's just a little shift in thinking, just right. moving your attention out. Yeah, it's, it doesn't have to be grand, huge things. It can be just really little things that once you start doing it, I really believe it takes you down a path 
to doing more. And I really believe that when you see the impact that you can make on a child in a community, your heart just grows. It just does. And it makes you more vested in your community. And then you're talking about it and other people are seeing how happy and fun it looks like you're having and they're going to want to do it too. That's awesome, Maureen. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I love chatting with you. Yay. And we'll have show notes for people that want to go deeper and learn more about Amara and learn more about the challenges that that are out there and how they can help. So thanks for coming and talking to us about this. Thanks for having me. Want to learn more about life in Tacoma? Visit movetotacoma.com. So it's not live. It's just. No, it's not live. (gasps) Girl, no. (laughs) Move to Tacoma. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. This is Channel 253.